Support for this podcast comes from the Phil Smith Center for Free Enterprise at the FAU College of Business. The Phil Smith Center for Free Enterprise supports the vision and strategic plan of the College of Business to advance thought leadership in business. The center supports chaired professorships and research, educational programs for faculty members and students, distinguished visiting faculty, along with a lecture series and other educational programs focused on the principles of free enterprise and how those principles affect growth and prosperity. Learn more at business.fau.edu forward slash Phil Smith. Hello, my name is Dan Gropper, and I'm the Dean of the College of Business here at Florida Atlantic University. And one of the great pleasures of being the Dean is to hire exceptional new faculty and welcome them to our College of Business. And today, our guest is Dr. Yannick Tams. And Dr. Tams comes to us from Suffolk University, where she had an excellent career. She had her PhD from FIU and worked with some of their top people in international business and strategy. She brings a wide variety of backgrounds to us, an excellent publication record and an exceptional teaching record. And we're very, very pleased to have Dr. Tams join us. So welcome. Thank you, uh, Dean Gorper. Very good. So I know you've had an active research agenda, particularly looking at various aspects of international business and strategy and how uh, boards and corporations uh, structure uh, themselves to be most effective. Can you tell us a a little bit about some of those research papers? All right. Um, So as you said, I've done a lot of uh, work in the area of board composition, but also corporate elite uh, in general. And I would say that three questions in this realm of research have shaped uh, my thinking. The first one is why do boards look the way that they do? What prompt firms also to hire CEOs or executives with certain characteristics? And the third question is, what do CEOs and board members bring to the table from a strategic standpoint? And in the area of board composition, I paid particular attention to gender diversity uh, and foreign diversity. So if you think of diversity, I know it's a hot topic, and particularly uh, gender composition of board, uh, boards of directors, and we're talking about publicly boards of publicly traded uh, uh, companies. So it's a hot topic because many countries have tried for the past few years to mandate uh, quotas, gender uh, quotas uh, for publicly uh, traded uh, companies. So we, ha- I have the example in mind of France or Norway that have mandated uh, a 40% gender composition on boards of publicly traded uh, companies. But the, the, the question is, what do uh, board diversity or gender diversity bring to the table? What's the business case for doing that? And our gender female directors likely to influence strategic decision making in the board in a different way. And what I, I what I find in my research is I find that a gender diversity could be va- very valuable. Uh, for boards and board uh, decision-making. And if you look at correlations between uh, gender diversity and CSR, uh, there is a strong positive correlation. But what I also find in my research is that the effectiveness of gender diversity 
uh, depends on the context of leadership in the sense that it's one thing for a lot of companies to actually abide by the quotas and actually bring more more gender diversity into their board of directors. And we, we've seen this also in the U.S., even if the U.S. doesn't have a quota uh, besides uh, California. But it's another thing to actually actually take into account what women have to say. So one thing, bring more board, uh, bring more uh, diversity because it looks good on paper, it looks good on annual reports, but it's another thing to actually uh, take into account uh, this diversity and leverage this diversity uh, to, to be very beneficial. So that's a, that is a very interesting thing because obviously uh, it is a hot topic, and some countries, particularly in Europe, have mandated specific targets for board composition uh, in gender. In your exploration of that, one of the things you quickly went over was CSR, which, as I understand it, means corporate social responsibility, right? Yes, yeah. So, so for our listeners who aren't necessarily uh, uh, up to speed on all the all the acronyms, that would be the one that we're talking about here. So, corporate social responsibility. Do you find that uh, or did you look at whether having more women on the board tended to increase corporations' interest in corporate social responsibility initiatives? Yes, that's what that's what I found. So what I looked at, I looked at CSR investments, so investments in corporate social uh, responsibility, but I also looked at ratings of CSR ratings uh, from Bloomberg, for example, an external party that rates companies on, on that type of uh, activities and initiatives. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually was going to be the next question I was going to ask was how you measured that. So use the Bloomberg index and and look at some things that way. That's really interesting. Did you look at overall profitability and firm performance? Did women on the boards there, did this, did the CSR performance come at the expense of profitability or could you say? Yes, I looked at performance and actually the, the, when I started this stream, I was uh, interested in financial performance. Uh, that's when I started this research project and then we transitioned to a CSL. The results are very mixed and uh, we, we didn't find good results when we looked at uh, return on investment, we looked at return on assets, and we also look at stock performance, and the results were very uh, mixed and very thin. And also, from a technical standpoint, uh, we were wondering whether or not there were some endogeneity problems, meaning that our firms with more uh, financial uh, capabilities uh, likely to attract more women on their board and you know so so uh, so but the results and then the literature in general so what we found the mixed results were in line with what the literature found there is mixed results regarding the link between women on boards and uh, financial performance and I know you've looked at other aspects of corporate boards too, the geographic diversity, the international diversity, and looking at whether having people from more than one country, particularly outside the home country, uh, if that improved uh, firm performance, you know, board diversity in that dimension. And uh, what did you find there? So the same, so, so the same type of results, um, basically, the results are very mixed and we don't really know if hiring more foreign members bring a good results as it relates to financial performance because it brings, it seems the literature 
seems to indicate, and my results also seem to uh, indicate that having foreign diversity is very good on paper, but harnessing the benefit might be very difficult. Why am I saying that? We're talking about more members that come from other countries. They might not know the reality of the firm the same way as uh, board members that come from the national context. And then also uh, the live uh, they live in a foreign country it might be very hard for them to um to actually participate to uh, the decision making you know of and participate to meetings and so on so it's not that on paper the idea is is not a great idea but in reality firms have uh, a hard time to harness the benefits of it and that's what my results and the literature uh, actually uh, uh, shows well, in looking at any of these things, it's hard to find any uh, specific measure that, that board composition will take that's directly related back to profitability. So, yes. these mixed kind of results are, at least in the research that I've done, very, um, it, it, you know, it's hard to find particular differences because of those indigeneity problems you talk about, which is basically, you know, a company and an existing leadership team that's interested in these sorts of initiatives may already be pursuing them. Yes. So the fact that they then go and put additional board members that are consistent with that, it may be hard to find that that really changes anything. That's just the path they were already on, which yes. is another way of talking about the statistical problem of endogeneity, right? Yes, and we try to correct for endogeneity. We try with um, uh, statistical techniques, but you know that we cannot minimize all those biases in our uh, regression results, and uh, unfortunately, but uh, we try very hard. Yeah, this is what business researchers have to contend with. We take the data from the businesses that are there as opposed to running experiments yes. on things because uh, many of our topics of interest may be difficult. We actually can't take a real performing company and experiment with their products and people's jobs and, and so on. Uh, so we have to take the data as it is there. Well, that's very good. Very interesting stuff. A cutting edge. So there's a really important topics and we're really glad to have you looking at them in a very systematic and a sensible way. So that, that's excellent. You've published in some some excellent journals, Journal of Business Research, Multinational Business Review, Global Strategy Journal. So these are all consistent with helping us move ahead in the national rankings and in, uh, in our research and achieving greater recognition uh, for the College of Business and the overall university. So we're really pleased to see you you're doing this and doing this well. I understand some of your latest work is in the uh, area of looking at big data and yes. looking at political donations and connections to to uh, to firms and their performance. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So, so what, I've, what I've done in this realm is that I've analyzed com uh, political donations of board members and uh, executives and companies. Uh, we're talking about publicly uh, traded companies. And uh, as you know, in the U.S., there is... DC mandates that all those donations, donations that exist 200, uh, that uh, actually are uh, greater than 250 be uh, recorded in a database. So I've looked at the data from a historical uh, standpoint. So that what we see first is that 
uh, if you look at Fortune 500 companies, they've made more than 2 million over the course of the past 10 years. Uh, uh, Fortune 500 companies made, made more than 2 million donation records, which is uh, amazing. So uh, actually, I work with comp computer engineers to help me mine the data because uh, we're talking about gigs uh, of data and a lot of political uh, contributions. So I'm still looking at this uh, um, data very uh, closely. And what I want to know is uh, whether or not there's a link between the political donation and ideology of firms. Can we, can we say that a particular firm has a particular ideology or a, a particular board has a particular uh, ideology? And would that, is there a correlation with decision making? Are we seeing uh, uh, firms that tend to donate more to the Republican Party take more uh, conservative policies and 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 the opposite for uh, democratic firms? And can we also talk about democratic firms or Republican firms? That's also uh, another question. And when I say decision making, strategic decision making, uh, I'm referring to the international decision making. That's that's the realm that I want to. Uh, investigate and I see I have some preliminary results uh, regarding uh, decisions regarding internationalization so I see that firms that give more to the Republican Party tend to take um, decisions regarding location of foreign activities and they tend to locate in less more conservative uh, they tend to take more conservative decisions and go to countries that are more um, more similar to the United States so I see some results regarding the choices of international uh, locations and foreign locations yeah it's interesting I, I've done some research in that area myself looking particularly at banks because I've uh, my area of research has mostly been in financial institutions and looking at banks, savings and loans and other things. And we found that banks with political connections, uh, senators and, and members of the House of Representatives from their home states actually performed better when their members were the chair of the uh, respective House or Senate banking committees. So political connections and political connections that most firms are interested in getting when they contribute to campaigns are particularly interesting and particularly important, especially for firms that are in regulated industries. And uh, so it's a fascinating area. I hope you find some, uh, some interesting results. I'd be happy to share share those results with you. Well, one of the key, one of the great things about being the dean is that, uh, and and or I should really say about an academic life generally is the ability to study questions that are both important but interesting to you. So, yes, for yes. many of our undergraduate students, if you say, "Hey, what you're going to do for a job is you're going to go write papers." They would yeah. probably sit there and frown at you and go, gee, I can't stand writing that 20-page term <laughs> paper. You mean that's what I'm going to do all the time and I'm going to really love it? So it's, uh, it is fascinating because all of us who are professors do, in fact, uh, love the research that we do or we would choose another occupation. I love my profession for, for, for that because I get paid to learn and I get paid to do research in the area that I want to research about. So what a great profession. I wouldn't trade it for any other profession. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's transition and talk a little bit uh, about your teaching. What courses, I know you're teaching down at Orndavy campus, which courses are you teaching? I will be teaching two courses this semester, Global Environment of Management and Global Strategy. Okay, so both focused on international aspects. 
Yes, on international aspects. So one at the uh, undergraduate level and the other one at the graduate level. Great, great. Well, very interesting. And uh, is that sort of interest in teaching at both the undergraduate and graduate level, it's something I know you've done throughout your career. And it's important for us. We have about 6,000, 6,500 undergraduate students and another 1,500 to 2,000 graduate students, depending on exactly when you count them, for about 8,100, 8,200 students total. And I imagine this semester, you're probably teaching everything online in some way or with a, on Zoom or something, right? Yes, and one will be uh, asynchronous. The graduate course will be asynchronous. It will be my first course asynchronous, and the other one uh, will be synchronous. And uh, so it would be an interesting experience to do the asynchronous. Uh, um, and the other one, when you say asynchronous, that just means you can lecture now and the students can watch it later. And if it's synchronous, you're doing it at the same time. Yes, right? yes, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so the students actually have to be online while you're teaching and you're lecturing in, in a similar way to the way we're talking right now. Is that the way you're doing that? Yes, that's a plan. Yeah, yeah um, for me, I can't wait till we can just get back to regular classes face-to-face, but that's going to be a little while. Yeah, me too, but I'm trying also to uh, maximize the learning experience of the students and, uh, you know, and, and offer them the best that I can offer because I know it's, it's tough for them. It's tough for them to, uh, this transition can be. Talk. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I know you've also been nominated for some innovative teaching awards and, and that kind of thing, as well as getting recognition for your research. So, congratulations on that. We're just so glad to have you here and doing those things. Have you taught sort of in an e-learning or a distance learning environment prior to uh, this semester? Yes, I, I did. Uh, and actually, uh, I developed for international, uh, for an MBA international business class at Suffolk University. I developed the, the I designed a course, uh, two years ago where I developed at activities and simulation, uh, small simulation, uh, games and content, uh, for that class. And this is the, 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 this is actually the, the template that will be used to teach international business uh, at Suffolk University. So uh, I would say that I have a, a lot of experience uh, doing this and I work with an instructional designer to help me uh, design and develop uh, the content of, of the course. Uh, and at Suffolk, we did it over seven weeks, a seven week uh, period of time. Oh, that's great. So that's that's sort of a compressed time frame, and that's some of what we're doing down at Davie yes. uh, as yes. well as so those flexible, uh, not necessarily the whole semester, half a semester, uh, and whatever works uh, well for that class. I also understand you've done a lot of experiential learning work and had your classes do even like uh, consulting projects for, for yes. real firms. Tell us a little bit about that and what, what's the benefit of that from your perspective for the students. So I think that the perspective is that you bring practice to the classroom. So basically what I did is I teach students concepts like I would do, you know, in every, uh, every semester. So it's some theoretical concept. And the interesting thing was for students to apply those concepts to uh, real problems and real issues that companies were facing and, and organizations. So we work for different types of organizations, chambers of commerce, startups, uh, et cetera. So when you teach students about the challenges of, do, of going abroad for a firm, what it's so good to actually 
for a firm to actually, uh, managers of a firm to actually talk about those challenges and for students to analyze those challenges and come up with strategies to, to actually cope with those uh, challenges. And I think that from a motivation standpoint, uh, experiential learning is very good because it motivates students quite a bit because they work on tangible uh, uh, projects that are very applicable. And we know that when you learn something, Thing and you know the tangible application of what you learn, uh, it enhancing, enhances the learning, uh, you know, your learning abilities and it maximizes your learning uh, experience. So uh, I think from that point of view, uh, this is a great uh, endeavor. And I was telling Sibel uh, at, uh, at, at your uh, part of your education, uh, executive education team, that uh, I would love to, to initiate that type of projects if there is a need at FAU uh, to do that. I think it's a great idea. And uh, in many cases, you know, part of uh, what I've done before is had students working on those kind of projects. And I think they're a great way to learn. The students have a better focus when they know they have to present their project findings to some members of the sponsoring company at the end of the semester, in addition to the regular faculty members. And I think it really is something that helps them really engage and apply the concepts, as you just said. Teach them the concepts, teach them these models, and then apply them to some real-world project, because that's exactly what they're going to do when they get out and graduate, uh, you know, in a, at the end of that semester or, or soon thereafter. You've also done a number of things with international business travel and taking yes. students on international business trips. I think it's a great way for students to learn. Tell us a little bit about that and uh, your philosophy behind doing that sort of thing. So what I like with those travel seminars is that it enlarges the student's perspective for many, for many aspects. We're talking about the cultural aspect, I teach them about when we go to a, a particular country, we talk about the history of the country, the political system, the economic system, and we also visit companies and talking about consulting projects, we do what, what I call flash consulting, where we, we, uh, we, go to an organization in the morning and we, uh, the organization actually uh, introduce students to a particular problem they're facing and students have to work on a case run the entire day and at the end of the day they present their findings or uh, the results of their research uh, to the uh, company. So I think that it not only uh, there's a, a pedagogical aspect where they work on a business case but there's also a cultural aspect because they have to present uh, to managers that are from another company, uh, another country, and they also immerse in a foreign environment. And uh, I think that in terms of global mindset, in terms of horizon, enlarging the horizons of the students, I think uh, this is a great experience. And I would encourage every uh, undergraduate student or MBA student to actually uh, enroll in a travel seminar because it adds a lot of value. So with COVID, I know it's very difficult and uh, to do that. And actually, I did my online, uh, my travel seminar online in March uh, because I had planned to take my executive MBA students at Suffolk to Paris and London, and the trip got canceled. And we did uh, all the flash consulting projects online over Zoom, which was an interesting experience, uh, but we still managed uh, uh, to do it. Yeah, so post-COVID, I look forward to uh, to work work on initiatives like that at FAU if there's a need for me to, to do that. 
Well, I think that sounds very exciting. And as we close, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your background. We have so many people here on our faculty and staff from so many different areas, different countries. And I understand you're originally from the Caribbean. Would you mind sharing some of that with us and how you ended up getting from there to study in America? Yes, so I'm a, from a French island, tiny French island uh, uh, of the Caribbean called Guadeloupe. Uh, so it's an island part of France. So we're talking about about 400,000 inhabitants, so uh, tiny island. So I grew up there. I was born there. Uh, and then I went to France to study uh, when I graduated from high school and France and then after I transferred to the uh, United States. So I go back to my island uh, quite often because my parents uh, uh, live, live there. And uh, I think living in South Florida uh, we will facilitate some of that and my parents will be able to come uh, to see me. And so I'm very uh, happy to be in South Florida in an environment where there's a large uh, Caribbean community and uh, uh, a lot of diversity. Uh, so I look forward uh, to contribute to FAU and to be part of the, the faculty here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. And you're right, we have a lot of faculty and staff from the islands, from all the different islands. So we have a lot of the Caribbean uh, represented here uh, at the university as well as in the community. And we're just so pleased to have you here and become part of our, our faculty. So Yannick, it's, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the College of Business here at FAU. We're glad you're here. Thank you so much, Dean Gropper. I, I really appreciate it. And thank you for organizing this podcast. This has been great and a great opportunity to interact also with, with you. To learn more about the FAU College of Business, please visit business.fau.edu. Dean Gropper Presents is part of the FAU College of Business Podcast Network. To learn more, visit us at business.fau.edu forward slash podcasts and follow Dean Gropper on Twitter at FAU Business Dean.